0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We'll be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of a new trial, and we will have more information about that in this podcast feed in the coming days. However, before we start Jury Duty season four, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in seasons one and two of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we heard their memories of the testimonies of the prosecution witnesses who took the stand just after the trial resumed in May of 2021. In this episode, we hear from Carmen and John as they recall the testimonies of key figures in the investigation of Kathy Durst's disappearance. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that they mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: We begin today's excerpts from my conversation with Carmen Kliteka by asking her about her memory of the testimonies of Bill and Ruth Mayer, neighbors in South Salem, New York, of Bob and Kathy Durst. Bill and Ruth Mayer testified, and they talked about the police coming to them, the New York State police coming to them and asking if Robert Durst had had a drink with them. And then Ruth Mayer testified about seeing a blue light in the basement. What was the impact of their testimony on, on your perception of the case?
2: It was uh, very important. It proves that um, he lied about that. And to me, that's that's a pretty big deal. He had reason to lie, and he lied. And also, you know, it gave me the first glimpse about Robert Durst and his planning skills his problem solving skills pretty much non-existent that that's the the first time where I was able to see that you know this is a pretty simple detail how does he overlook something so big how does he think that, that he can he can say he was at having drinks with the mayors and not be found out. And I wondered, you know, did, did it occur to him that what was going to happen when, when the police asked the mayors? That was sort of, that, that was a, an important moment for me. That this is a guy that just acts without thinking. And, you know, maybe he gives in to a rage or maybe it's self-preservation I mean, who knows what the reason is, but he just doesn't... I don't think he he has the ability to just stop and think for a moment about the impact of his actions.
0: I want to talk a bit about Michael Strzok's testimony that you saw a recorded version of. What was your impression of Detective Strzok?
2: Shameful. Incompetent. I think that had he done his job even even with minimal effort this this case could have been so different the events that followed could have been so different and maybe the other two people who who um died may may not have died and it's really the way he handled this is is um shameful and i can't help but think like how how embarrassing for him as the lead detective, in his incompetence and inability to do even the bare minimum, how embarrassing that a woman who is um, has no training in law enforcement is actually doing more work on this case than he ever did. And I'm referring to Gilbert and Najami when um, she actually took she actually went for like low hanging fruit. To uh, help put pieces together of this investigation, like she went and to the train station to find to see if she could find out if uh, Kathy had actually uh, boarded that that train that night. She went through like some garbage and she tried to collect some some evidence. I think she like broke into the house to see if she could find some trash or any kind of evidence. Uh, I mean, these are things that uh, Michael Strzok should have done, and what a, a dedicated friend uh, she was to, to Kathy to try and, and help uh, find her and, and get to the bottom of what happened to her.
0: Do you remember your response when you heard that he had slept with one of Kathy's friends?
2: yes. We had uh, been listening to that video for several hours to Michael Strzok's testimony. And it was um, late in the day. So court lit out at 4.30. You know, we were nearing the end. We had had lunch and people were a little bit tired from uh, being in court all day. We were feeling, you know, that Postprandial slump, where you sort of get very relaxed after lunch, and then all of a sudden at like four twenty nine, we hear him say like that he had slept with one of Kathy's friends, and uh, we were shocked. I remember the chairs next to me; we all popped up out of our seats and uh, our jaws dropped, and then. Uh, We were like, ready to hear the rest. And then Judge Wyndham says, oh, it's 4.30. We got to go. We're like, no. (laughs) So uh, needless to say, we were very excited to get started the next morning. We wanted to hear the rest of that story.
0: (laughs) The other sort of shocking thing about Michael Strzok's behavior was that he came in the possession of notes from an investigator that was actually working for one of Robert Durst's lawyers. and rather than doing what he should have by law done, which is refuse to accept them or turning them over to his superior, he simply just took them home with him and kept them for his own use. Do you remember hearing that or was it sort of lost in the shock of hearing that he slept with one of Kathy's friends?
2: No, I do remember hearing that. With him, it was just one thing after another. I mean, clearly he was not an honorable Officer. It's a shame that he was assigned this case.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of a few of the key witnesses who gave testimony about the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance. I want to move on to Ruth and Bill Mayer, the neighbors of the Durst's, who Robert Durst said he stopped by for a drink with. I wonder what your thoughts were on their recorded testimony.
3: Their testimony, I really don't remember a lot of the details. The only thing with regards to them that really stuck with me is that Robert Durst had, you know, testified, he told the police that he stopped in at their place for a drink and then when the, you know, police tried to you know, corroborate that, you know, they found out, you know, that was just a lie. You know, he just made that up. It was just shocking to me that, you know, he would be so careless. To say something that would obviously come back to show that you know he wasn't telling the truth. So you know the fact that uh, he had tried to use them as kind of an alibi that proved to be false was uh, a key indicator of you know Robert Durst's capacity or incapacity to tell the truth.
0: And then of course there's also the interview that Andrew Jarecki did with Durst in which he cavalierly says, "Yeah, that was a lie." Do you remember what Robert Durst responded when Andrew asked him? why he would lie about that?
3: I think he believed because he said he thought that's what the police wanted to hear. Do you
0: remember your response when you heard him say that in the recording?
3: Up until that point I would say it was you know, he was being very consistent in in just making things up as he went along with the feeling that he was going to get away with it. And that was one thing I think, you know, the prosecution said that he was very prone just to say things that he felt would never be questioned because he, he led this life of entitlement where he could get away with anything he wanted. I mean, so it was that, you know, in in addition to an already very, very narcissistic personality.
0: I want to move on to detective Mike Strzok from the New York Police Department. What were your impressions of his recorded testimony?
3: Uh, detective Struck, you know, was, it was very interesting to me. I remember, you know, they showed, you know, pictures of him, you know, when he was much younger. And he looked like, you know, the typical um, New York detective that you'd, you know, seen all those gritty, you know, 1970s movies. So, you know, he, he definitely struck me as very much as a, as a archetype. Now, this is my feeling, you know, in in discussions with uh, a lot of the jurors, they didn't feel as sympathetic as as I did. But my first impression of Detective Strzok is he did not want to be there. He didn't want to be there. And as we watched his, you know, recorded testimony, you know, which was very, very long, you you could tell his, you know, increasing discomfort, you know, in being there. And he was one of, I would say, one of two actually, uh, maybe three or four key witnesses that Mr. Lewin just did a devastating, you know, cross-examination. And Mr. Lewin would continuously get detectives struck to admit he would have done it differently. He didn't do the best possible job. You know, he could have. And I, I sort of I looked at it this way though. I think if this was a murder trial, if you know Kathy Durst's body had been found, the investigation would have probably been much more thorough. Although the defense may not have argued the case as strongly as I think they could have, you know, it was a missing person's case. And I remember the fact that, you know, the example that missing persons cases, you know, there's a lot of people who go missing, but yet they're really not missing. So I thought perhaps that Detective Strzok's handling of the case maybe wasn't so much inept, but was kind of maybe the status quo of how most missing missing persons cases, you know, were being handled. Again, it was obvious based upon, um, you know, Mr. Lewin's... uh, cross-examination that, uh, you know, he dropped the ball, you know, on many, many things. But the, I guess, the level of responsibility, or I would say guilt that, you know, Mr. Lewin was, you know, suggesting, I thought was, <laughs> I thought it was pretty harsh. I mean, the the whole, he was laying both, uh, you know, Morris Black's death, as well as Susan, Susan Berman's death on, uh, you know, De- Detective Strzok's shoulder and uh, there was a certain amount from my standpoint of a, a sympathy that i had for him in that you know knowing what he knows now right all of us knowing what we know now he would have done things you know very very differently but i i, I don't know if the level of guilt that was you know being uh, directed to him was uh, really appropriate Several of the other jurors thought, yeah, he, he completely uh, botched it. But I put it like, into context as to uh, more of a missing persons case than a murder. The other thing which was very interesting to me about the trial, and I thought it would come up, but it never, never did, was the insinuation that the wealth and power of the Durst family, you know, the political connections had to exist. That somehow, you know, those weren't an influence, you know, on the investigation. I, I kept wondering if Detective Strzok was going to, um, you know, maybe throw some of his superiors, you know, under the bus and, you know, say that, you know, he was merely following, you know, the, uh, the chain of command. And some of these, I guess, suggestions which might come up above as to his handling of the investigation weren't his, but his superiors. And but he, you know, and as to why he really didn't know that never came up. There were two things
0: that did come up. Number one, that. Detective Struck was given by one of Robert Durst's lawyers' investigators a set of notes and evidence that he had collected when working for Durst and that Detective Strzok had kept that material, not shown it to superiors, but instead brought it home with him and kept it personally. And then secondly, that Detective Strzok acknowledged that he slept with one of Kathy Durst's friends who was essentially a witness in the case. Did you as a jury discuss either of those facts?
3: We thought that with the, the latter fact that Detective Struck slept with, you know, one of the uh, potential witnesses, we didn't really discuss that so much as uh, indicative of his credibility, but just as another, you know, kind of cinematic fact of, of the case, you know, like, like I mentioned before, the, this seemed like, you know, it was, uh, it was a movie, in which I guess it was a movie, but you know, things that are so incredible, who would ever believe it, and him sleeping with another witness was, you know, that that's something like, you know, you'd seen, again, as I mentioned, in like a 1970s uh, NYPD, uh, you know, gritty movie on New York. So uh, I, I thought that just kind of uh, validated with a gritty environment, the New York police probably was back in the, you know, good old 1970s. So we discussed it, but we discussed it mostly, you know, as, as a crazy fact. With regards to his testimony, you know, everyone thought that based upon uh you know Mr. Lewin's cross examination that yeah he really he he really dropped the ball and with regards to him holding on to that evidence I don't think that ever you know came up but during the trial when they mentioned it I I I kept thinking or expecting somehow the uh political influence of the, of the Durst family might have come into play and and again detective struck would have you know throwing someone else under the bus and saying that, yeah, he was, he was instructed you know, to hold on to that stuff, but it, it never came up. It was never brought up or suggested by the prosecution.
0: We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections. First, we are going to hear from the Durst neighbor, Ruth Mayer, who observed an unusual occurrence in the days after Kathy Durst's disappearance. Ms. Mayer is questioned by Deputy DA Habib Balian.
4: Did you ever see Kathy again after that time you saw her in the morning on the 31st? No. In the day or days following her disappearance, did you notice anything out of the ordinary at the Durst residence?
3: Yes. There was nobody home um, or there were no lights on except for a blue light in the basement window. It was odd.
0: Next, we hear testimony from Ruth's husband, Bill Mayer, about a statement that Robert Durst gave to police regarding his activities on the night Kathy disappeared. Mr. Mayer is questioned by Deputy DA John Lewin.
4: You're aware, Mr. Mayer, that Bob Durst told the police back in 1982 that the night his wife disappeared after he dropped her off at the train, that he came and had drinks with you, is that correct? You're aware that he said... That is correct. And can you tell me, is that true? Not true at all. And are you sure it's not true at all?
1: Absolutely. I'm I'm absolutely sure.
4: And when... This is not the first time you've been asked about that, is that correct? That's true. In fact, you were asked by detectives back in February of 1982 from the New York Police Department, and you relayed that same information, is that right? That's true. And if I were to ask you, again, on a scale of 1 to 100, with 1 being I'm not sure at all, and 100 being I'm absolutely certain, How certain are you that Mr. Durst did not come over and have drinks with you uh, on Sunday, January
0: 31st? 100%. We also have the evidence that was played for the jury that Robert Durst lied to police about going to the mayors. This clip is from Andrew Jarecki's 2010 interview with Robert Durst.
4: And um, then you went to the mayors yeah, that's what I told the police. I was hoping that would just make everything go away. I didn't go to the mayor's. I just took her to the train station, went home, and went to sleep. And why, why would that have made everything go away? Well, then I am at the mayor's. They wanted to hear, you know, what did you do? So I told them I did that. I, I just never got through my mind. It was like a negotiation. You tell somebody something, and, well, that's it. Uh, they, they don't go back there. They don't They don't look for motive. And why is he telling me this kind of thing? I thought that would get them to, you know, leave me alone, accept the missing person like that.
0: The remainder of our clips in this episode are from the recorded testimony of New York City police detective Michael Strzok under questioning by Deputy DA John Lewin. We begin with Strzok's testimony regarding his findings in the investigation of Kathy Durst's disappearance.
4: During your investigation, did you ever find any credible evidence that Kathy Durst had voluntarily taken off and abandoned her life?
0: No,
4: sir. During your investigation, did you ever find any credible evidence that Kathy Durst had killed herself? No, sir. Did you ever find any credible evidence that Kathy Durst had overdosed on drugs? No. During your investigation, did you ever find any evidence that anyone other than her husband, Robert Durst, was responsible for her disappearance and death? No.
0: Next, we have Strzok's admission about a major lapse in his ethics and his judgment.
4: Now, at some point, did you come into possession of reports that uh, appeared to be written by Ed Wright regarding his work on the Durst case in 1982? Yes. Now, detective, when you got these materials, you are trained and you understood, correct, that you are not legally allowed to be reviewing materials from a defense lawyer or an investigator under correct. their employ, You understood that, correct? Correct. Detective, then
1: why, when you received them, did you go through them? Uh, I, I, my guess is everybody had read them even before I walked into the squad. Detective, listen, isn't it true that when you reviewed
4: those materials and you knew it was coming from Mr. Dirk's private investigator, that what you are legally obligated to do ethically obligated to do, and procedurally obligated to do by the New York Police Department, is to put those down, contact Mr. Scapella or Mr. Wright, and tell them, you know what, I've come into possession of something I'm not supposed to have, have you order. Is that, correct.
1: It was not well, done.
4: Well, that was not a question. Listen, you knew that you were looking at something you weren't supposed to look at. I think you say that. Okay. And, and you did not contact at all Mr. Wright or Mr. Smith, is that correct? That's correct. Detective, did they wind up in the NYPD folder, or did they wind up in your personal files that you took with you when you retired?
1: I believe they came with me.
4: Um, you would agree, Detective. There's no way that you could have written, I received these privileged materials, which I'm not supposed to look at. Now, I'm going to document that I received them. You knew you were doing something you weren't supposed to, and you took the stuff and you took it home with you, correct? Okay, I guess. And in fact, Detective, you have later stated, correct, that you did that because you knew you were not allowed to use anything that came from Ed Wright in your investigation,
1: correct? Well, I knew we couldn't use it, and we didn't use it. So at that point, it was just, just something else. From the folder. And it isn't it true that the only reason
4: that these documents came to light is that when you did your interviews with Andrew Jarecki and Mark Sterling, that you gave them access to
1: all of your personal files. files, correct? I, I did let them look at everything, everything they wanted to look at uh, and hope that they could help develop this case from it, just like everybody else I spoke to. I
4: want to be clear, in no way am I insinuating that you did not want to solve this case, but, but I want to go back. Isn't it true, Detective, that you did not realize that you were giving Jarecki and Smerling copies of
1: materials that you were supposed to have? I the a choice at the time, yes.
0: And finally, we have the most salacious admission of impropriety in the testimony of Detective Michael Strzok.
4: Did you, during your investigation in this case, back in 1982, have sexual relations with a witness, an individual who was involved in this case. Yes. And detective, without going into
1: the person's name, I want you to describe what happened. I had received the phone call and I was by by one of these people. Whether I would join them uh, I believe the next day to look at the premises of, of where one of them had lived and to see if there was any relevance to the case. Uh, I was asked to come at the end of the day to accommodate their work schedule and mine. Um, I went there. Um, on entering, the one The individual that I had sex with told the other one, I forget the exact words, don't you have something to do? She left, and after that, the person that I had sex with uh, initiated something that I went along with. Um, What was that?
4: She initiated oral sex? Yes. And did you, at that point, did you stop her? No. All right, so did you have oral sex with her? Yes.
1: Okay, please continue. Uh, from that point, um, when I was nearing the orgasm, I then said to her, Are you okay with that? Or would you like to finish in a conventional way? Um, from that, we then went from the couch where I was seated and slid onto the floor. And then we had intercourse on the floor. Detective, in in any way,
4: was this anything other than a consensual encounter? No. Detective, you have talked about the professional way you handled this case. Would you agree that that kind of conduct was about as unprofessional as you can get? Yes.
0: That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we hear from Carmen and John about their memories of the testimonies of witnesses who presented evidence that Robert Durst was involved in Kathy's death and that Susan Berman helped him cover it up.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
0: You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.